Thanks for joining us on this week's episode, where we watch and discuss the Best Picture nominees from the 62nd Academy Awards. I'm Maddie. And I'm Kelsey. Let's find out if the Oscars got it wrong. So the 62nd Academy Awards, yes. a very important year in both of our lives. It's true. The film's from 1989. Why is it so important to us? We were born that year. This is our hey. birth year. So huge global news. <laughs> 1989. So that was going on. Mm-hmm. I was alive for like six months of it. Uh, a great time. I was alive for about four months of it. So... Hey. Me, the young scamp of the podcast. (laughs) Yeah, you're just a young kid. So that was going on Mm -hmm. in geopolitical news, I guess, if people care about that. I mean, I think we could have just been like, we were born, so. Probably just stopped there. Yeah. People have stopped caring at this point. But just in case, interestingly, our last episode in 1961, the Berlin Wall was going up, and we just so happened to find ourselves on the opposite side of that, and the Berlin Wall comes down this year. So we've just skipped the entirety of Soviet Russia, basically. Yep. <laughs> uh, the Cold War came, and now it's ending. So yeah, there, there were sort of harbingers of this beginning of the end of communism in uh, Russia through the course of the year. We have Visa becoming available in Russia, McDonald's and Nathan's famous hot dogs both crop up in Moscow. Mm -hmm. So that's really, I mean, a true sign that capitalism has invaded. Yeah. And obviously, those companies stayed in Russia for about, how old are we? 33 years. And um, yeah. And as people are aware, due to recent events, a lot of them have pulled out. Wild times in Russia. You never know what you're going to get. Right. So communism falling. In Russia, that means communism is over, right? And the Cold War is done? Sure do hope so. Uh, Unfortunately not. While this is happening over in China, the Tiananmen Square protests happened this year. A bunch of students and citizens protesting the government in China. And you probably know it from the famous picture of the man standing in front of the tank. Mm -hmm. That is what this has become immortalized by. But uh, obviously... China has never really released the real numbers, but somewhere between hundreds and thousands of citizens were killed in this event. So unfortunately, authoritarian governments did not end. No. (laughs) Meanwhile, over here back in the States, we have another president being sworn in. We've done a number of years that are at the beginning of terms, which Mm -hmm. is interesting. George H.W. Bush is uh, sworn in this year. And then also in environmental news, I will characterize this. Yeah. The Exxon Valdez oil spill happens this year. Environmental catastrophe. So and that's not great. We learned our lesson and started to reduce our reliance oh, on yeah. oil. And-, and we never had a major oil spill again. Yeah? No? <laughs> no, unfortunately not. <sighs> okay. Some cool stuff happening in technology. The first GPS satellite goes into orbit. Exciting. That's pretty cool. I rely heavily on GPS, so glad about Don't that. Don't we all? Dial-up internet begins. I also rely heavily on the internet, so. Yeah, though luckily not dial-up anymore. Yes. And the Game Boy is released. I rely less heavily on Game Boys, but I love Nintendo, so it's all good. <laughs> Does anyone rely heavily on Game Boys? Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. Could be the only thing keeping some people going. You never know. So that's 1989. 
a lot going on. The 90s are looming. Anything could happen. And we'll see eventually what goes on in the 90s. But I think that gives us a good sense of the year. So we can do our little quick overview of our five best picture nominees and what they're all about and what they're nominated for. The first nominee is Born on the Fourth of July, a war movie about a Vietnam War veteran who becomes an anti-war protester. It stars Tom Cruise, Kira Sedgwick, and Willem Dafoe. It was directed by Oliver Stone, written by Oliver Stone and Ron Kovic. It was nominated for eight awards and won two, Best Director, Oliver Stone, and Best Film Editing. Next, in alphabetical order, Dead Poets Society, a drama about an English teacher who inspires a class of young men at an elite Vermont boarding school in the 1950s. Stars Robin Williams and very young Ethan Hawke, Robert Sean Leonard, and Josh Charles. Directed by Peter Weir, written by Tom Schulman, nominated for four Academy Awards, and it won one for Best Original Screenplay. Next is Driving Miss Daisy, a light drama about an African-American chauffeur who befriends an elderly Jewish woman he is hired to drive over the course of 25 years in Jim Crow, Georgia. It stars Morgan Freeman, Jessica Tandy, and Dan Aykroyd. It was directed by Bruce Beresford, written by Alfred Urey. It was nominated for nine awards and won four. Best Picture, Best Actress, Jessica Tandy, Best Screenplay Based on Material from Another Medium, and Best Makeup. Fourth on our list is Field of Dreams, a magical realist tale about a man who is told by a ghostly voice to build a baseball diamond in his yard. Stars Kevin Costner, Amy Madigan, and James Earl Jones, directed and written by Phil Alden Robinson, nominated for three Academy Awards and one zero. And then finally is My Left Foot, a biopic of Irish painter and poet Christy Brown, who was born in 1932 with cerebral palsy. It stars Daniel Day-Lewis, Brenda Fricker, and Ray McNally. It's directed by Jim Sheridan, written by Sean Connaughton and Jim Sheridan, nominated for five and won two, Best Actor, Daniel Day-Lewis, and Best Supporting Actress, Brenda Fricker. Okay, so those are the five. I guess it's probably good to give people a sense of what people were seeing when they went to the movies this year. So let's go through our list of the highest grossing movies to see how well they match up. Yes, So number one at the box office that year was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Number Mm -hmm. two was Batman. Number three was Back to the Future Part Two. Number four was Look Who's Talking. And number five was Dead Poet Society. So we do get one of our films in the top five. Six was Lethal Weapon 2. Seven was Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Eight was Ghostbusters 2. Nine was Little Mermaid. And ten was Born on the Fourth of July. So there's two nominees in in the top ten this year. Several sequels. Mm-hmm. Kind of a, a fun year at the movies, I think. A lot of fun pop culture fare. I think you could have a great time at the movies in 1989, just generally. For we'll sure. talk about some other fun stuff that was in the theater at the tail end of the podcast as well. Yes. There were honestly a lot of memorable movies from 1989. Anything particularly notable going on this year? We like to talk about if there are interesting tech innovations or, you know notable directors or performances that we're not mentioning otherwise one thing that i think is important to both of us that is worth mentioning is this is the beginning of the disney renaissance mm-hmm. our childhoods were particularly full of wonderful disney animated classics and this begins with as we've already just mentioned the little mermaid yes we will definitely be mentioning more disney movies whenever we get to the years of the 90s So that's personally resonant with us. And then also in interesting news, Jessica Tandy, who we mentioned won uh, an Oscar, is the oldest ever winner of an Oscar for performance. 
So that's pretty cool. Way to go, Jessica. For Driving Miss Daisy. Yeah, way to go, Jessica. So yeah, uh, Driving Miss Daisy is the winner. And it's a kind of a, at this point, controversial choice. But at the time, what was the consensus about Driving Miss Daisy? So even at the time, it was a somewhat controversial choice, which I was actually a little surprised to see. It, this is one of these films that appears on sort of the the worst winners in Oscars history lists. But we went back and read some of the reviews of the Oscars at the time, and critical consensus was pretty strongly in favor of Do the Right Thing being the best film of that year, which you may notice wasn't nominated. Yes and no. I, there was like a group of young Hollywood people that were very much in favor of Do the Right Thing, which we will obviously talk about a lot later. And yes, critics were supportive of Do the Right Thing. But I I did find it's not like the critics did not like Driving Miss Daisy. No, it was well reviewed. But I think what the critics were saying at the time, it actually hasn't shifted as much as I would have expected, right? So that was a little surprising to see that there was a lot of of critical consensus around the idea of like, the fact that Do the Right Thing was not nominated was a surprise. And then to have Driving Miss Daisy win in the year of Do the Right Thing was questionable. Particularly surprising, I think. <laughs> to be fair, a lot of what was written about the Academy Awards after the Academy Awards was just like, oh, thank God Billy Crystal was the host. Honestly. Well, they had had a terrible Academy Awards ceremony the year before. Yes. So I think there was a lot of talk about making sure that things went smoothly. And uh, Billy Crystal is always going to make sure things go smoothly. But it was Academy his first Awards. time hosting, which is very cool. <laughs> And the first of many. Yeah. yeah. Interestingly, Driving Miss Daisy was the last Best Picture winner to be rated PG. That is interesting. And I think will be something to keep in mind as we do later years as well. Because I think there's going to be years where I'm going to feel like a PG movie should have won Best Picture. I mean, we just talked about the Disney renaissance. So. Oh, yeah. Put two and two together, guys. Yeah. We're going to have several Disney movies coming up that we feel like should have been Best Picture nominees and probably were not. Because I think there's only one, right? It's only Beauty and the Beast Beast was nominated for Best Picture. And then sometime in the, what, late 90s, they developed the animated category. I think it was like Mm. post Toy Story. Was it post Toy Story? God. What a disaster. We'll find out. We'll find out. We'll find out. We'll all find out together. But yeah, so as, as I said, the historical consensus now is that this is a highly controversial Best Picture winner, and even more controversial that Do the Right Thing was not nominated. Yes. The lack of nomination for Do the Right Thing is probably the the most controversial thing about this Academy Awards. So yeah, there's much to say about all of this coming up. We shouldn't spoil our own opinions about it too much, I don't think. So let's begin with our series of questions. So the way we do this is we say, are we mad that what won won, or would we have been mad that any of the other nominees one if they had won we'd like to do it in the most convoluted and confusing possible way a yes means we don't think it should have won (laughs) (laughs) so maddie driving miss daisy are you mad that it won best picture indeed i am same are you yes yeah (laughs) okay then we'll go through the rest of the films in alphabetical order born on the fourth of july would you have been mad every time we do this i change my opinion about how i'm going to answer these questions so i'm just going on instinct this time and i'm going to say yes i would have been mad same Mm-hmm. Dead Poets Society. Yes, I would have been mad. Same. Field of Dreams. Yes. Same. My Left Foot. Also, yes. Same. Wow. Okay. <laughs> We're on the same page this year. So, yeah, we usually at this point give our quick thoughts about the double yeses, but we've ended up with 
all double yeses. (laughs) So here we go to discuss all five of the Best Picture nominees. So first up is Born on the Fourth of July. I had not seen this before. I think you had not. Nor had I. Before either. So before we go into our opinions, let's Uh tell people what it is in case they haven't seen it. Yes. So Born on the Fourth of July is about a real guy. Tom Cruise plays this very naive, patriotic, all-American young person who ends up signing up of his own volition to go to Vietnam because he's grown up hearing the stories of his father and grandfather and all these people who fought in these very important American wars. And he goes over to Vietnam and he ends up getting paralyzed. And then he comes back to the States. He spends time in this rough (laughs) veterans hospital receiving less than optimal care. And over the course of many years after the war, changes his mind about the war. And then by the end of his arc, comes to be an anti-war speaker. What are your thoughts about it? So I don't think I've seen a lot of Oliver Stone movies generally. So I didn't come into this with a strong opinion either way on him as a filmmaker. This movie is a lot from the beginning, which I thought was odd. So before he goes to the war, as we mentioned, he's a sort of all-American kid. He's born on the 4th of July. Ron Kovic is literally born on the 4th of July. And so we see him when he's a little kid and he's at a 4th of July parade and the veterans from World War II are coming through. And it's very dramatic in ways that I I found strange. So there's this very strange part where it goes into slow-mo and his mom is like, you're my little Yankee doodle dandy. And I was like, this is terrifying. (laughs) Why is this so scary? Uh, yeah. And then he's a teenager and he's on the wrestling team and the wrestling scene is so dramatic. It really is. Man, oh man. So it's kind of at this level all the way through. There are some quieter scenes later in the film, but it mm-hmm. starts off like a lot. You know, obviously it, it is affecting. The Vietnam War was horrible. Horrible. But I also, I just don't know that this is a movie that I need. And maybe this is with perspective of, like we said, we were born in 1989. So at this point, we've been in a war for most of our life. We've been hearing about the VA being underfunded for most of our life. Yeah. Well, and also we've been hearing that the Vietnam War was fucked for our entire entire life. Like that's not news to us. And so I 100% agree with everything this movie is saying, right? Yeah. But it sort of falls prey to the issues of a biopic. It's a little episodic. It's hugely episodic. I was going to mention that. It feels like the chapters of a book. They establish early on that he has feelings for this character who goes on to be played by Kira Sedgwick. So there's a scene when they're young and they kiss and then he clearly has a crush on her. And then later he goes to see her after he's come back from the war and he's paralyzed and he's not on board with anti-war sentiment yet. But she's at college and she's protesting and they have an interaction. And then she just disappears from the movie. It's so weird because you think they're going to end up together. And he goes on the rest of his journey. Like you think she's going to be with him through his journey to being an anti-war protester because that's where she's at. But we just never see her again. Is the last moment that you see her when they get separated at the protest? Yes. That's so bizarre. And it's after that that he really spirals and is like, no one will ever love me. And and it's like, Kira Sedgwick does love you. Yeah. <laughs> Why aren't you talking to Kira? Why are we just lo- <laughs> left Kira? What's going on? So that was strange. That is part of his journey is that he feels like no one's ever going to love him because uh, he's lost the use of a lot of his body. Mm-hmm. And there's this scene where his very Christian mother is very upset about how he's been acting because obviously he's traumatized and has been drinking and coming in late and 
she doesn't like what he's been up to and then they have this fight in the night when he arrives home drunk and he's understandably yelling about all of the things that he's upset about and she's very angry that he's saying words that she finds offensive yeah. she's not even registering the things that are actually affecting him but he's mentioning that his dick doesn't work and she she's like, like don't i can't believe you penis. yeah don't say penis is what she's yelling and it's like your son is so traumatized can you just help him but instead she's kicking him out of the house for saying penis it's amazing yeah what a scene that is <laughs> and then the other thing that i found interesting about the movie but they didn't follow up on and i think i was in this mind frame like we're obviously going to talk about how race plays out in multiple of these movies Oh, yeah. So when he's first at the VA hospital, he's hopeful that he'll be able to learn how to walk again. And it's shot brighter and, and things aren't mm-hmm. quite as terrible. But Even though the hospital is just... It's in, it's, bad. it's in bad shape the whole time. But he yeah. has this conversation with one of the black orderlies about how the civil rights movement is also happening at the same time. And he's like, this isn't our war. We don't care about this. You're fighting communism overseas when we don't have rights here at home. Yeah. And then he's trying to learn how to walk and he falls and the bone goes through his leg. It's really gnarly. And that's when the experience of the hospital really shifts in a very dramatic way. So then it cuts to a scene where he's been in traction and he's been like sitting for hours and no one's come to help him. And the black nurse and order has sort of become part of the system of this VA hospital and they stop even kind of being people. And that thread of what's happening with the civil rights movement is not picked up. So... What is the film trying to say about this perspective other than just presenting it? Yeah, it skirts up against the idea of the anti-war movement and the civil rights movement being parallel things that can go hand in hand with each other, but it never really does anything with it in a significant way. Yeah. I mean, I loved that moment with the orderly at the hospital. That guy was interesting, but then you expect Ron to come around to his point of view in some sort of meaningful way later on, and I feel like it just sort of goes away. (laughs) So yeah, there's things that are in the movie and then are just dropped. And you're like, yeah, what happened to Kira Sedgwick? What happened to this this thing? I I totally agree with basically everything you've said. I mean, there's nothing in the movie that's really new to us as people who are alive when we're alive. I did still like his journey. Where I felt like I wasn't loving the story was in a lot of the Vietnam stuff, the like actual in Vietnam stuff. Obviously, the whole movie is Vietnam stuff. And uh, I didn't love how it was shot, first of all, like the flat orange background stuff I just found to be not that interesting to look at. But that was minor. For me, what was what I felt like they missed the opportunity to do is really dig into what was fucked up about the Vietnam War. I feel like the things that you get from it were all sort of accidental. They were Mm. fucked up. But the things that happen to him are they accidentally end up killing all of these civilians. And then he ends up shooting someone on his own side. But clearly it's an accident. And all of this stuff is bad, but it's really there to be like, war is bad because people die. Maybe part of that is if he saw the really bad stuff, it's hard to not be radicalized. It's hard to hang on to... America is still good. They're still there for the right reasons. You know, Mm -hmm. I just thought it was kind of flat for me, the Vietnam stuff. I mean, it's difficult to say because this is a biopic. I guess we should have called it a biopic and not a drama in the summary. I thought we did. Oh, no, we called My Left Foot a biopic. You're right. This is also a biopic. So like, maybe this just was his experience. Like, Oh, yeah, absolutely. This could be the case. And 
it's hard with a biopic. It can't serve all purposes, right? It, it is what it is. It's his life. Like as a story about Vietnam, it's not as powerful as it could be to a viewer. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Especially a viewer who already is predisposed to be on board with the message. You're already there like, yeah, we know it was terrible and, and we should all be against it. And yeah, you're right. The, the VA is underfunded and everyone's fucked by it. Like we know these things. So since we're coming at it from a perspective of you're telling us you're like preaching to the choir, yeah. I just was hoping for something a little deep. This made me think too about, you know, we talk about the benefit of having historical perspective and in, in doing this reassessment, but it's, but I don't know, maybe in 1989, people still really needed this type of movie about Vietnam. I think they probably did. It's not that far removed from the war. Yeah. So it's a little different to evaluate it again from our experience where all we know about Vietnam is that it was a boondoggle and horrible and we never should have been there. So right. you watch and you go, yeah, man. Yeah. I Sounds know. about right. <laughs> You're just nodding along the whole way. Yeah. We should mention, I really liked Willem Dafoe in it. We didn't yes. really talk about the Mexico chapter. There's a there's a period in the movie where his, he's been kicked out by his mother because she can't handle how coarse his language has become. <laughs> Penis. And, yeah, and he, godly. He hears that there are a bunch of other vets who are hanging out in Mexico. And, and Willem Dafoe is another paralyzed vet who's down there and there's this interesting community of guys who are like living in this world where they can feel not rejected because they all in America have felt like society turned on them when they returned from the war so that's interesting and but yeah I didn't hate it but I think you're right that maybe if I watched it 33 years ago I would have been more more impressed yeah I agree it's made Fine, except for all the stuff that you bring up and then just drop. And what happened to Kira Sedgwick? What? Ha- I mean, I guess it must be that Ron Kovic just like never saw her again. And that's how lives work. That's true. But for a narrative, it's not that satisfying. Kind of weird. So let's move on to Dead Poet Society next on our list. Mm-hmm. A Robin Williams classic. Yeah, which we had both seen before. I was intrigued to watch this again because it had been many, many years. And I think I said to you before I watched it, I wondered if it would be too schmaltzy, but I still liked it. Robin Williams, he's always great. And I think all the kids are really good. So Dead Poet Society, in our description, we mentioned it's the 1950s at a boarding school in Vermont. Robin Williams plays this English teacher who is an alum of the school. He comes back to teach there. And it's very like prim and proper and traditional, the school. Mm -hmm. It's very dry. It's very dry. And most of the kids come from these very wealthy parents who have these very specific ideas for their futures. And Robin Williams comes in and and shakes everything up because he's like the cool English teacher who in, in this amazing like totally ridiculous but pretty romantic way convinces a bunch of teenage boys that the cool rebellious thing to do is to be into reading poetry (laughs) and they start up his old club the dead poet society where they all go off to a cave together and recite poetry and then he ends up being too much of a threat to the system because robert tron leonard's character who has a very exacting father who expects him to be a be a doctor who is Kurtwood Smith the yeah. dad from that 70s show it's not the number one bad dad but he's a pretty consistently he's bad a, dad he's a consistently bad dad and so Robert Sean Leonard wants to be in a play 
and uh, his father is not on board with that. So he's in the play, his dad is furious about it, and then he ends up killing himself, and the school and the father decide to blame Robin Williams for it because he came in and put these ideas in his head. And so they make all of the kids sign this letter saying that Robin Williams' character was a bad influence on them so that they can fire him. And then they all stand on their desks and say, oh, captain, my captain, in support of him as he leaves. Yeah. So that's the general plot of Dead Poet Society. What did you think of it after all these years? So, I mean, I agree. I thought it was good. It didn't blow me away. You know, it's interesting, again, right, to watch this movie as an adult. I don't quite know how I feel about their relationship with Robin Williams. <laughs> I think the movie might benefit from him being a, a slightly more complex character. He sort of just is in the background of their lives, being this perfect, idealized version of what a teacher is. He always knows yeah. the right thing to say. And he's just like, mm-hmm. boys, we're going to walk around today in funny ways and we're yeah. going to learn He's from just this. there to teach them to be independent thinkers. Yes. That's the most important <laughs> thing yes not to be a stick in the mud but at the end of the term what have they they learned about well, all the poetry? boys that are doing their own poetry reading on their own time are learning poetry that's true I, I just don't know but yeah all the performances are good robin williams is great he gets to do some impressions in the role which you always want to he see. does i was thinking like what if in real life you had a teacher that was that good at impressions <laughs> I mean, that would be delightful That would be delightful. And yeah, all the young actors are great. Robert Sean Leonard is so sweet and cute and sad. Yeah, he's so good. There's a scene right before the play where Robert Sean Leonard talks to Robin Williams and tells him like, I talked to my dad and it went great and he's going to let me be in the play. And that's the text of it. But there's this great subtext to Robert Sean Leonard's performance that all is not well. Yes. And he's so good in that scene. He really crushes it. And I do like the scene of the play because I feel like, you know, you talked about this movie being schmaltzy and sentimental. There is a feel good version of this movie where you watch the scene of the play and he's doing great. And then his dad comes in everyone gives him a standing ovation so at a certain level your brain is like oh his dad's gonna come around and be like you are great get on board now (laughs) and then for it to be this turn where his dad is like how dare you you're going to military school it really does take the movie in a in a bit of a different direction than you might think as a first time Mm -hmm. viewer i think it's a good movie yeah i still like it but i also don't think that it should have won best picture yes so on to A fascinating entry in this category. I think Field of Dreams, Mm -hmm. which you had not seen. Correct. And I had seen, but many, 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 many years ago, Uh long enough that I barely remembered any of it. What I remembered of it, and we'll talk about this, is basically the first 20 minutes. (laughs) Yes. That is what I thought was the entire narrative of the film. So in this very specific way, it reminded me of our experience watching network where what I knew from this film is the very iconic line, if you build it, he will come. And so I thought this entire movie was about a man hearing a voice and throughout the movie, he maybe hears the voice and he wrestles with it. And by the end of the film, he builds a baseball diamond in his cornfield and then ghosts come and play in it. And as you mentioned, you remember the first 20 minutes of this film, which is that part. So when 20 minutes in, he's built the baseball diamond and the ghosts are there. I was like, so what's the rest of this movie going to be? (laughs) Which is kind of fun. Yeah, 
I, I do like when a movie can buck your expectations like that because you're like, oh, well, what I thought was going to happen has already happened. So now what? And then it becomes like a road film with <laughs> yeah. James Earl Jones. <laughs> I mean, it, what it is is a classic entry in the baseball is a metaphor for the love between fathers and sons film genre. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's this fascinating subplot where Kevin Costner and his wife were these like sort of lefty hippie characters in their youth and were very interested in the writing of this influential black author who's played by James Earl Jones. And he has since become a recluse. And so then part of the the ghostly auditory hallucinations of (laughs) Kevin Costner lead him to go find this author because he thinks he plays into this somehow. But then once he finds the author, the voice says ease his pain ease his pain so he thinks he's going to try to ease the author's pain but then that's not it then they think they're supposed to find this guy who is a doctor now but almost became a a big league uh baseball player but he has since died so they don't Mm -hmm. get there in time to see him but then of course costner who can communicate with ghosts (laughs) has a vision of the ghost doctor and they have a chat about how he feels about having not gotten to live his dreams but really the moral of the story for him is he kind of did live his dream because He ended up having this great life and saving all these people and having this wonderful marriage to a woman that he really loved. So that's interesting. But then Costner and James Earl Jones are sort of like, well, then what is our mission? What are we trying to do? So they're driving back to the baseball field and they meet the ghost version of the young man of the doctor (laughs) before he became uh, a baseball player. So they bring him back to the field. And so he thinks then, okay, well, we're making his dream come true. We've made Shoeless Joe Jack's dream come true. Whose pain am I supposed to be easing? And then, of course, it all comes back around to his relationship with his father, who he was never close with. But his dad is the reason that he loves baseball. And so then, of course, the ghost of his father is there and they get to have their game of catch and all is well in the world because baseball brings fathers and sons together. Yeah. And there's also the thread, which is also common in many baseball movies where like baseball is a metaphor for America. Oh, yeah. James Earl Jones has this pretty intense speech about like baseball has always been there. And it's like, OK, so, yeah, that's that's both happening. But as we said, it's sort of like a light dramedy. Yeah. It's pretty enjoyable to watch. It's a pretty weird movie. Yes. The narrative arc is not at all what you would expect. No. What I loved about it is his relationship with his wife. Yes. And how cool she was and totally on board with all this ghost shit. (laughs) And also the two of them are these very progressive minded folks. I feel like there's this interesting thing to it where when you think in your head about what is the demo of a baseball movie? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't think this is exactly what you expect because they're all for racial justice and they love this writer. And also there's a scene where they have to go to their PTA meeting because all of these shitty parents are trying to get books banned at the school. They're trying to get the the Terrence Mann, who's the James Earl Jones character, book banned. And the scene functions as a way of introducing Terrence Mann to us so when we have to go we know who he is but it's pretty fun there was a line in that scene that i loved where the woman who's trying to get it banned she's up at the mic complaining about the books and she says you know why he doesn't write anymore because he masturbates (laughs) (laughs) 
it reminded yeah. me of the the PTA scene in Donnie Darko. <laughs> yes, one hundred percent. I was like, oh, PTA scenes, great uh-huh. stuff. PTA scenes are good, but it it gives a chance for the wife to not just be the wife yeah. character. She's got all of her own stuff going on, and she's there campaigning against these book burners. And the daughter's super adorable. Oh, that little girl is so cute. <laughs> Another little part I loved in the movie was when they're building the baseball diamond and her dad is explaining to her about the Black Sox and how Shoeless Joe couldn't have really known what he was doing. And he's like, he hit a 356 and never had any errors. If he cheated, how could he explain that? And the little girl just goes, I can't. Oh, my God. She's so cute. I mean, it's a fun movie. I'm not entirely sure why it was nominated for Best Picture. Well, you know, it's America. It's baseball. It's fathers and sons. Yeah. Watching this movie, too, as someone who's not super into baseball, I could totally see how this could affect someone very deeply emotionally. If you have a difficult relationship with your father or if you had this experience of baseball being the thing you had with your father, I can see that working for you. It didn't necessarily work for me. I also think it's kind of interesting, right, that What's happening in the backdrop of this film about the purity of baseball is in 1989, Pete Rose gets banned and Jose Canseco and Mark McGuire are leading the Oakland A's to the World Series while they're roided out of their minds. And so it's just kind of funny. I think that almost makes it more fitting, though. People have this idea about the purity of baseball, and clearly it's never been pure because it's about a team that intentionally lost the World Series for money. And I just think it's interesting how it is this really nice representation of America because people have this idea about the purity of America when really it's always been a lie. (laughs) And I feel like that matches up with baseball so well. Well, one thing about the non-purity of America that I also found interesting that this film doesn't address at all is a racial issue. So you have James Earl Jones there, and at no point do they mention the fact that, hey, uh, we're like making all these baseball players' dreams come true. We're helping them ease their regrets. We're giving them opportunities they didn't have in life. Are there any black players who couldn't play in the major leagues that come out of the cornfield to play ghost baseball? None at all. Which is even weirder Because they've given the characters this sort of woke element. It's fascinating that that is a part of the plot of the movie is that they love this really important black writer and there's no racial element to the baseball part of it when that's such a huge part of baseball history. And I think James Earl Jones's character must be old enough to have experienced baseball when baseball was segregated too. And he also is never like, so not a single black ghost. (laughs) It's wild. Like, I don't know that this movie could handle that, though, and and still be what it is. There's always the tension, right, of do you want a movie to bring something up and then not follow through on it in the sort of born on the 4th of July situation we talked about or just not touch it at all. But it does feel like a bit of an elephant in the room (laughs) when you're watching this movie. Because of the James Earl Jones plot line. Yeah. Like, they're the ones who brought it up. I just think that that is an interesting thing that is not in this movie. But, you know, it's a fun crowd pleaser, I'm sure. Best picture? Um, I don't think so. But kind of a confusing choice. Not mad I watched it. No, not mad I watched it. Might be late in this conversation for this, but I wasn't mad about watching basically any of these movies. I have been mad about watching movies we've watched before on this podcast. No, none of these movies made me mad. Yeah, so it was a pleasant experience, but also interesting because... 
most of the movies I think should have been nominated are not movies that were nominated. Yes. That makes sense. It does. (laughs) I feel similarly. Up next is My Left Foot. One of the many Daniel Day-Lewis Oscar-winning performances, a movie that I had not seen but had been meaning to see for Mm -hmm. many years as a Daniel Day-Lewis fan. What's it about? He plays this Irish writer slash artist, Christy Brown, who's born in 1932 in Ireland, beginning of the Great Depression, to a family of like 15 people, and they have no money, and he has cerebral palsy, and he can't talk as a kid and he can't really move around and the reason it's called my left foot is that's what he has the most mobility with so as an adult he ends up painting with his left foot and writing with his left foot and so it's this unlikely story of a guy who when he was born the doctor said you should probably just send this kid away to some sort of institution and his mother just decides she's not going to give up on him (laughs) and so she keeps him he ends up learning how to write with his foot as she's teaching the other kids how to write he ends up learning to talk eventually with the help of a speech therapist that he falls in love with and he ends up becoming this amazing painter very talented great artwork so talented this is based on the his like autobiography so he writes that and he's also a poet and just a story of him overcoming the odds and daniel day lewis is obviously great but it's biopicy. yeah what are your thoughts about my left foot So very impressive performance by Daniel Day-Lewis. We mentioned he wins the acting award this year. Totally deserved. I thought the Mm -hmm. child actor who was playing the child version of Christy Brown also gave a very impressive performance. Yeah. We also mentioned that Brenda Fricker, who plays his mother, wins the Supporting Actress Award. She's very good in the film. But yeah, as you mentioned, it's a biopic. It's definitely a story I was not familiar with beforehand. So that's not bad to be introduced to another person's story. But it has all the problems of a biopic. A lot of it feels pretty episodic. Sort of a, and then this happened, and then this happened kind yeah. of a story. So yeah, I, I was reading about Christy Brown as well. So the, the movie has a bit of a framing device. It starts off with him as an adult, and he's at this benefit. And so he's sitting in a back room with a nurse who's reading his autobiography. So it will cut back to them in the present with her reading his book and then cut to literally the chapter you mentioned chapters in Born on the Fourth of July, literally the chapter yeah. of his life that she's reading. And it's interesting because that character is a person or portraying a person he goes on to marry. Did you read about his life with his wife post this movie? No. Tell me about it. It was horrifying. Apparently she was terrible to him. <gasps> and the interviews you read with people knew him describe it as like a horror movie. She was going off and sleeping with other people and she would leave him at home alone for like weeks at a time and she wasn't feeding him. He was emaciated. At one point they had him institutionalized for malnutrition. And then the, he died. He had to have his food cut up into very small pieces to eat. And he died choking on a piece of food that was too large. And I was reading an interview with someone who was a family friend. And she was like, well, you can think about what might have happened there, right? It's negligence on the part of his wife. And so it's very interesting that the film ends in this sort of like triumphant, like he's found love and like, yay. And then you read about that and you're like, there is a coda to this film that is horrible. And when he died, she threw out all his paintings. And so the family friend rescued his paintings. And so the paintings we see in the film are his paintings that they had to go through this woman's trash after he died. It was seemingly bad. So it's very interesting that this 
film makes the choice to yeah and well, they want you to have a happy ending manner. but damn yeah it's pretty it was pretty it was pretty crazy that's rough because <laughs> yeah there it's that's wow that's a whole other side of things i had no idea about it's interesting because obviously it would be a happy ending no matter what the previous contents were, if the ending was like, and then they fell in love and got married. Mm -hmm. But the reason it's particularly meaningful in this context is that one of the main story arcs of his life is romantic rejection. So there's an incident when he's a kid where he has painted this painting for a girl he likes and he gives it to her and she thinks it's from his brother, but then she finds out it's from him. And then she goes to him and is like, I can't accept this. Like she can't even accept the painting as a romantic gesture because everyone will make fun of her for being involved with him. And then later on in his life, when he's working with this speech therapist, she's coming to work with him at his house and she's helping him with the speech and she's helping him with his mobility. And they have this intimate connection intellectually and he ends up falling in love with her And is trying to confess his love for her. But there's this thing that I think is common to a lot of disabled people's stories where Mm -hmm. no one really sees them as an actual adult, like a romantic potential person. And so he's trying to confess his love for her. And she's there being like, yes, I love you too, Christy. And like, not meaning that at all. And so there's a scene. I loved the scene at the restaurant. That's probably the best scene in the film. Yeah, one of her friends, so he thinks, is in the art world and he agrees to do a showing of Christie's art at his gallery. And so Christie puts on this show. He's having a great time. He thinks everything's going well. They go out for dinner and drinks afterwards. And then she announces that she's getting married to this guy that owns the gallery. And Christie, of course, feels like she's been leading him on because he's been confessing his love for her. And she's been saying, I love you too, Christie, but just meaning like as a brother, as a friend, as a, <laughs> as a cousin. Yeah. Yeah. As a cousin. So he throws a fit in just the best possible way. I love how great he is as being an asshole. That's mm-hmm. one of my favorite things about this Christy Brown performance is that I think people often portray disabled characters as just being these perfect, lovely, never has a bad moment sort of characters. And he just decides to get raging drunk and he's yelling at everyone and he's really making her regret bringing him out to this dinner in the best possible way until he has to get thrown out of the restaurant. Yeah. (laughs) And he's just so good in it. Daniel Day-Lewis does crush it. It's a great performance. But that's why you sort of feel like there's this great redemptive thing at the end where he finally meets this woman who sees him as a person and falls in love with him too. And then to hear that their life was terrible and she was a monster afterwards, that's pretty rough. Yeah. Yeah. My left foot. So again, great performances, yes. but I I mean, the narrative of it, while amazing that it's a true story, I didn't find to be what I would have chosen as the best picture. I think it will be interesting to see if we ever come across a biopic where we think it should have won best picture. That's a great question. We'll keep that in mind. Let's start adding that to the things to track part of the podcast. So I think unless there's anything else that brings us around to the winner of this year's best picture award, Driving Miss Daisy. In Mm -hmm. all of its controversy. Yes. So Driving Miss Daisy starts off in 1941. You have Jessica Tandy. She's an older Jewish woman. She goes to go to the Piggly Wiggly and she crashes her car. And her son, who's played by Dan Aykroyd, is like, the insurance company will not let you drive anymore. So we need to get you a driver. And he hires Morgan Freeman to drive 
Miss Stacy around. <laughs> in the title. Uh, yeah. And initially she rejects him and she will not accept a ride from him, but goes on to develop a friendship with him over the course of, it is about 25 years. So we go from the early 1940s to the mid 1960s. In the latter part of the film, she develops dementia and has to be put in a home. And then the final scene is them together him visiting her in the home and she tells him you're my best friend and they have you know like mm-hmm. little little adventures along the way and that's driving miss daisy yes where to begin with driving miss daisy do you want to give the backstory of the alfred yuri trilogy of plays i think that's an interesting thing yeah about so this. the thing that's i think that's interesting about this movie is we mentioned that it was well-reviewed and it's based on a play by uh, this playwright named Alfred Urey, who has a series of plays called the Atlanta Trilogy, which are essentially about being Jewish in the Deep South during Jim Crow. And so not only does Driving Miss Daisy win Best Picture, Driving Miss Daisy, the play, wins the Pulitzer the year before. So, like, the story's hot <laughs> in this time yes. And so, like, that is the most interesting dynamic of the story is the fact that the family is Jewish. My takeaway from watching it is I feel kind of bad for driving Miss Stacy. I feel like it is a very sort of milquetoast movie that is not built to handle anyone having a strong reaction to it. And by winning Best Picture, it has forced people to have a strong reaction to it. I don't know that I think it should have been nominated. And I think if both those things had not happened, this could just be like a little movie that some people like. And that would be fine 100% I mean the reason people myself included are mad about how things played out at the Oscars is not so specifically about the actual contents of the films though I think there are some objectionable things about Driving Miss Daisy I think it's a lot more about the symbolism of it and like what it says about America and Hollywood, (laughs) that Mm -hmm. these are the choices we have made, the things that we have decided to elevate and the things that we have decided to ignore. What is that saying about our priorities? So you're right that if Driving Miss Daisy had not been nominated for Best Picture, it is a footnote to history. It is a few people's favorite movie from the 80s that is just like a pleasant story about a couple of people from different sides of the tracks who become (laughs) friends, unlikely, you know, that sort of story. It just it can't bear the weight of all of this discourse. <laughs> it is not built for the discourse. And I don't think that it is an ill-intentioned film. No. I think that Alfred Urey is mostly coming at it from this Southern Jewish perspective, which I think is interesting, but it really cannot bear <laughs> the racial elements of the story in a way that is useful to the conversation. Mm-hmm. So there are elements of it where towards the end, it starts to try to have a perspective about things, but never really gets there, I think. There's a scene where Miss Daisy's synagogue gets bombed, but it it happens all off screen. And Hoke has a, a sympathy and an understanding for her about this, because obviously he can totally understand what it is like to be in this place. And so that starts to hint at they're trying to do the, you know, we're more alike than we are different kind of mm-hmm. storyline. And then... Towards the very end, she starts to get kind of interested in the civil rights movement. Martin Luther King is coming to town to speak. And she's going to this dinner that he's going to be at. And 
it sort of becomes this afterthought that maybe Hoke would be interested in going with her to the dinner. And then as they're, he's driving her to the dinner and as they're outside of it, she's sort of like, you wouldn't have wanted to come with me to this, would you? (laughs) And he's like, what are you doing? Like, if you want me to come to this dinner with you, ask me. You should have asked me to come to the dinner. Yeah, I saw you got the invitation a month ago. So plenty of time. And it's like, as a normal human person, you'd think it might have occurred to you that your black driver slash best friend (laughs) might have been interested in going to see Martin Luther King speak. And so it's like, it starts to sort of appear in the movie, but not in a way where it does or says anything about it, really. It's very backdrop to the small story of these two particular people. Yeah, but I feel like it comes at it from an angle of different people from different places who wouldn't normally be friends, but become friends, but without any of the context of why they're different people from different places who might not likely be friends. Like that part of it is just left out of the film. It is contextless. Yeah. Yeah. Which is bizarre. And then there's all these moments throughout where she keeps talking about not wanting to have these people in the house and that sort of thing. And her son, Dan Aykroyd, keeps being like, what do you you mean mean? (laughs) by these people? And she multiple times in the movie is like, you know, I'm not prejudiced. I've never been prejudiced. And that's sort of where they leave it. That's the extent of the conversation. Yeah. I think you mentioned before we got on the podcast that one of the most interesting things about this movie is Dan Aykroyd's wife, who is a Jewish woman who is deeply trying to fit into wasp Southern Christian society. And so I think if the movie had focused on that more, that would have been fun. Well, I just think that's the thing that's interesting. What's interesting to me about this movie and this whole series of plays is Alfred Urey's perspective on being Jewish in the South. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. That's a That's a different sort of thing you don't hear about a lot you don't even really think about there being a lot of jewish people living in the south and so the parts where you feel like he's really speaking to his experience and something you haven't seen before are the parts that are about that so there's a scene where jessica tandy's character has to go over to their house for a christmas party (laughs) because dan agra's wife is throwing a christmas party and she's beside herself trying to figure out what the hell that even means and she's given a gift to uh morgan freeman's character and it's like it's not a christmas gift because i'm jewish and i don't give christmas gifts (laughs) and so the, the the parts of it that are good i think are the parts that are specific to that experience but because of what it is about the actual narrative of it That's not what your takeaway from the movie is. Right. So one of the things that I did read about the play is this is from Yuri's experience. So his grandmother had a black driver and they became friends. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's pointed out about this film is you hear a little bit about Hoke's family and his life, but you never really get to see him outside of his interactions with either Dan Aykroyd or Jessica Tandy. That's probably because that's, Alfred Yuri's perspective. He mentioned his grandmother would talk in the back of the car and he never really learned much about Hoke. And it's it's like, well, then maybe this isn't the story for you to tell if you can't round out the other the characters part yeah. of the tale. But I think yeah. you're right. I don't I, I just I don't think it is a great evil, which some people no. talk about driving Miss Daisy. Like it is the most horrible racist film that's ever been made. And I don't think it's quite that. No, I, I definitely don't think it's trying to do that or doing that. I, I, I It's just that, again, it's all context. It's all the, the fact that Do the Right Thing also exists and was not yes. nominated in the same year. But it's also, it's hard to make 
maybe impossible, maybe impossible in these days at least, to make a movie that in its text is about race, but says nothing about race. (laughs) So that is where it just falls apart because clearly you're trying to say, isn't it nice that black people and white people can be friends? It's one of those black people and white people became friends and ended racism movies, but that's not a thing. You're not saying anything. So why are you making the movie? Yeah, I don't even know that that's what the movie's trying to say. I think it is really just a story about these two particular people, but because that's the context that it's in, you want it to say something about that. Right. That's what I mean, really. It's not necessarily saying that, but I'm saying a movie that this is the plot of, Mm -hmm. you're watching it looking for it to say something. Yes. And And for the the fact that it says nothing makes you just sort of like, well. (laughs) What's going on there? Yeah. So should we talk about Do the Right Thing? I think we should talk about Do the Right Thing. So we have said, yes, we're mad about any of these nominees winning Best Picture. So that leaves open the window of, well, then what wouldn't you have been mad about? Which I think leads right into the biggest topic of conversation about 1989. And that is Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. A Spike Lee joint. As it says A Spike Lee joint. In the opening. Exactly. So tell me, before we get into our thoughts, tell me the premise. So Do the Right Thing takes place on the hottest day of the summer in the Bed-Stuy neighborhood of Brooklyn in New York City. And it is the story of just growing tension throughout the day as it gets hotter and hotter and hotter. It centers around Sal's Pizzeria, uh, which is an Italian pizzeria that's in this otherwise black neighborhood. And there's a large cast of characters. You're following them around through the street on the day. And in the end, there's a conflict between Sal and another character named Radio Rahim that ends in violence. Sal destroys Radio Rahim's boombox. Radio Rahim responds by trying to strangle Sal. And then the cops arrive and they They choke Radio Rahim to death, which then leads the crowd of of neighborhood residents to destroy Sal's pizzeria. I don't know how to describe the movie more succinctly because there's so many characters moving around throughout the day. Well, yeah, it's an interesting one because it becomes a movie with a lot to say, but it starts as a movie that's really just a slice of life meeting all these characters in this neighborhood and getting a sense of what it's like to be there. Spike Lee plays kind of the main character, Mookie who works at Sal's Pizzeria, but is obviously from the neighborhood and so has connections to all the people that live there. And so a lot of what you spend your time in the movie doing is just following Mookie on his day at work. He goes into the pizzeria, he makes deliveries, he's walking around, he's interacting with all of the people in the town. But we're not always with Mookie. It does also jump around to the other characters. But he's sort of like the ambassador between the two worlds of the movie. And we should also say... It's not just this Italian pizzeria. There's also across the street from that a store that had been boarded up for years and has recently been bought by this Korean couple who are selling, it's like a fruit. A grocery store. It's a Korean grocery store, yeah. And so there's all this interesting intersectional racial tension going on in the neighborhood. We also have a a group of Puerto Rican kids and Mookie's girlfriend is also Puerto Rican. And then there's a white guy that has moved into the neighborhood. So there's a gentrification conversation happening too. He's wearing a Larry Bird jersey which is honestly so funny it's it's amazing so yeah it's just this interesting multicultural situation with these super vibrant characters that are all so specific with so much personality and it's just a fascinating neighborhood and then by the end yes things sort of explode 
But yeah, there's so much to say about this movie. It's hard to even start. And yeah, I don't think I could walk through everything that happens in this movie. Like my takeaway at this point is I would have to see this movie multiple times to really get a cohesive feeling about Mm -hmm. what exactly the film is trying to say. It's far more interesting and complex than anything else we've talked about so far. The filmmaking itself is so dynamic, the way the camera moves through the streets, through the windows of the buildings, around the characters. The color is so interesting. Yes. Every part of the film is so interesting and there's so much going on. And I think, right, one of the things that makes the film so complex is it isn't just the story of, oh, there are these white people in the neighborhood and they're racist and they're taking advantage of the black residents and they're clearly the villains. It's like everyone's kind of racist in this movie. There is also the very iconic scene where they're just flipping between the different characters spewing slurs and stereotypes about different groups right to camera, which is very interesting. They're talking right to camera. It's all just very interesting and and Mm -hmm. very complex. And then the thing that that is also very interesting about the movie is so, you know, in my very poor summary, I said it ends with the pizzeria being destroyed, but that's not really the ending. The ending is the next day where Mookie coming to get paid for the day before And Sal gives him the money. Sal's there. His his pizzeria's burnt out. It's completely destroyed. And they sort of leave the interaction like, all right, see you around. It's such a fascinating scene. So, I mean, to get into more of the specifics of how it all plays out, Giancarlo Esposito's character gets very upset about Sal only having pictures of Italians on the wall of the pizzeria. And Giancarlo Esposito comes in. He's mad because all the people that eat at this restaurant are black and he's like why are there no black people on the wall he decides this is his cause of the day and sal is very much like it's my restaurant it's my wall what are you gonna do about it i i love these italians <laughs> they're mm-hmm. going on the wall and so all day Giancarlo is trying to raise support for his cause he wants people to boycott sal's and then it's not until he comes upon radio rahim who has had his own conflict with sal that day because he plays fight the power on his boombox yeah. everywhere he goes all the time, very loud. And he takes it into Sal's and Sal makes him turn off his boombox and he's not pleased about it. And so uh, they end up meeting each other and both are mad at Sal. So they go in to have this conflict with Sal at the end of the day. And they're also with Smiley, who is this yes. mentally disabled character who is consistently trying to sell photos of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X throughout the neighborhood. Yes. So Buggin' Out and Radio Rahim and Smiley all come in with their specific axes to grind with Sal. And so then, yes, they all come to this violent altercation. But really, it's a thing where it's bad, but it wouldn't be the end of the world. They probably all could have walked away from this altercation had not the cops shown up? Maybe. I mean, Maybe. Radio Rahim was strangling Sal on the ground and they were having difficulty pulling him off of him. They were. But they're all, I think they were trying to end the conflict on their own is yes. how I would characterize yes. it. So yeah, the cops show up and then of course, you know that things are about to escalate in a terrible way. And they do. They're all standing there not knowing what they're going to do after this. And Mookie grabs um, trash can. Trash can, yes, thank you. And throws it through the window of Oscar the Grouch style metal trash can. It is exactly like an Oscar the Grouch trash can. He grabs it, he throws it through Sal's window. And so then that, he's the one who probably in, you know, Sal's mind 
sort of started this burning of his restaurant. And so then it's fascinating. I think the next morning, Mookie, the first thing he does, he gets up and he's like, I got to go get my paycheck from Sal. And you're thinking like, I don't know if Sal's going to really want to see you this morning. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, so he goes down to Sal's restaurant and he demands his money. And Sal angrily gives him twice what he's owed because he feels betrayed by Mookie. Mm -hmm. But then what's fascinating about the scene to me is they're yelling at each other and then it sort of naturally peters out in this interesting way where then he's like, are are you all right or whatever to Mookie? Mookie's like, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. I mean, I'm really hot, but basically I'm good. And then he's like, well, what are you going to do today? And Mookie's like, well, go get paid, I guess. And Sal's just sort of like, all right. <laughs> yeah. He he ends up throwing five $100 bills at Mookie and Mookie gives him two back and he's like, hey, I owe you $50. And yeah. Because like, he doesn't, he's angry at that point and doesn't want like, I don't want your charity yeah. or whatever this is. And then at the end, he, I think he picks him up and walks away. The implication is that their relationship is going to continue. If he says to him like, I owe you $50, the, the hard yeah. implication yeah, is yeah, like, yeah. I'll see you around. <laughs> right. Which is fascinating. That, very interesting ending. Yeah, because you feel like the ending of a lot of versions of this story would be them burning his restaurant. And the conclusion yeah. being the racial tension has won. And that is what it is. And I feel like there's this interesting beat at the end where it's sort of like, well, we all have to live together. Yeah. <laughs> like they, Their relationship can't really end. Can we talk about climate change for a second? <laughs> Can we talk about climate change? Yes, let's. So I think they say that this is the hottest day of the of the year. I think it's 92 degrees, which is hilarious. Ooh, balmy. I live in, on the East Coast in a city. We've had summers where we have weeks where with the humidity, it's over 110 degrees, right? And it's disgusting. But this is a concern with climate change because there is a correlation between heat and violence. As heat increases, you see more violent outbursts. And so in urban greening communities and in urban forestry communities, we talk about this all the time because the urban heat island effect also exacerbates all of this stuff. So like this is hanging in on that too. And it's funny because the three older men also have a conversation about the ice caps melting. And I was like, oh boy. So this is only going to get worse, guys. (laughs) More and more, we're watching all these movies from years and years ago. And I really just feel like nothing changes or maybe just everything we're talking about now we've been talking about for a long time well yeah (laughs) to be fair we've known about climate change since the 70s so yeah so much of this is today's conversation because there's climate change in it there's gentrification in it there's police brutality in it there's just so much that is i guess i'll say unresolved (laughs) because It's still, I think that is, again, what's interesting about the choice he made to portray all of the characters as racist. Like, that's sort of the key of why we can't solve these problems is because it isn't limited to white cops, right? And things are exacerbated when people get heated. It's cognitive load. You can't Mm -hmm. stop yourself when you're angry. It makes it a much more interesting and I think real movie than if it was just a very clear cut of these white people are the villains. And there's also a very interesting scene earlier in the film where the young kids open up that fire hydrant and the cops Mm -hmm. come through. That's a fascinating scene. I love that scene. You know, they tell them you can't open the fire hydrant. And an Italian guy comes through in a convertible and he's like, don't, don't spray me, kids. And the kids, of course, spray him. Obviously. What an idiot for even trying to drive through that I don't know why he didn't just back up and go down a different I know. Block. Go the other way. <laughs> You're in the city. So, anyway, yeah. The kid sprays car. He's furious. The cops show up. 
And he flags them over and he's furious, saying to them, these kids ruin my car. I need you to find them and arrest them. Right. So I think there's like a version of this movie where the cops in that moment are also brutal, but they don't care. They're like, kids, don't turn this water back on. And they're basically making fun of this angry Italian guy. In a hilarious way, because the guy obviously can't give a description or anything of the kids. And then they're like, well, did you catch their names? (laughs) He's like trying, he's making up these names. And he's like, I don't know, like Mo and Joe Black, let's call them that. And he's like, the cop's like, so they were brothers. So like every character is dimensionalized, even these white cops. And I think there is a reading of this film of you have this fight between Sal and Radio Rahim escalating over this boombox, this destruction of property. And I've heard Spike Lee talk about how people watch this film and are so upset about the destruction of property of Sal's not noticing that Radio Rahim has been killed. But there's almost the same dynamic beforehand because he really is strangling Sal. Yes. But the difference between the white cops and what's happening on the ground, I think you're right, is A, they're all trying to resolve it, but also cops get to dip into the community, kill this man, and then just dip out with no consequences. Presumably, if Radio Rahim had killed Sal, he would have gone to jail. Oh, yeah. Well, I also think there's this element of, yes, everyone is dimensionalized. Everyone is racist. Everyone in this conflict is to some degree right and to some degree wrong. And it's not until the institutional thing arrives that does not affect everyone the same way. All of a sudden, the institution is there and the white guys are fine and the black guys are not. Right. Yeah. As you said, we're still having this conversation about the difference between structural racism and sort of just what's happening on an interpersonal level between people. Mm -hmm. Do you have any other thoughts about... My thought is just everyone should go watch it. We can't really describe it to you. It's so fascinatingly realized it's bold and vibrant but also so nuanced and complex there's just so much going on and everyone is gonna have their own interesting reaction to it and and again it has it has levels there are parts of this movie that are very funny the fact that that white guy is wearing a larry bird jersey there's so much humor to the movie because i mean spike lee is just funny and i always feel like for any movie Humor helps you feel serious things more deeply. That's how I feel. I feel like things that have humor help you connect to characters Mm -hmm. and then make you better able to understand either the drama or the tragedy or the whatever of it. But yeah, do the right thing. It should have been nominated. It probably should have won. Yeah, I guess I'll say I think this probably should have won. If all of my other movies were things I would have been mad about, I would not have been mad about Do the Right Thing winning. Yeah. All right, so we got other stuff we want to talk about, too. What else did we watch this year? I know this next movie is a favorite of yours. It is. Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Very different, uh, tiny little indie picture from first-time filmmaker Steven Soderbergh, who went on to direct all kinds of things. Yeah. And he had He's had quite the career. But he started with this intimate little character piece starring James Bader and Andy McDowell, and Peter Gallagher and Laura San Giacomo, and really they're the only characters in it. Peter Gallagher and Andy McDowell are married. He's a lawyer. She's a housewife. This is also in, I think we're in New Orleans, or Baton Rouge probably. And they're they're in this kind of loveless, now sexless marriage. <laughs> He's having an affair with Andy McDowell's sister, who is Laura San Giacomo. 
the sisters don't get along super well. They're very different people with very different outlooks on the world. And then an old college friend of Peter Gallagher's, who is played by James Spader, comes back into town and wants to stay with them. And he's changed a lot since they knew each other in college. And Andy McDowell sort of expects him to be this very bro-y guy <laughs> like her husband is. And then it turns out that he is this very sensitive intellectual type that she was not expecting. James Spader's character is now impotent and that you don't get all of his backstory, but it sounds like he was like potentially abusive to some exes in the past, mm -hmm. had a personal reckoning. And now the only way that he can either get an erection or achieve orgasm is he interviews various women about sex and he tapes it and then he later watches the tapes in private. And so he and Andy McDowell have this interesting interpersonal connection with each other. But then when she finds out about this, it's shocking to her. Andy McDowell finds out that Peter Gallagher and her sister are having an affair. She goes over to James Spader's and the two of them connect emotionally over the course of him interviewing her. She goes home to break up with Peter Gallagher. Peter Gallagher comes to beat up James Spader <laughs> and watches her tape. And then basically the end is Peter Gallagher has been blowing off this guy at work to have an affair for the entire length of the movie. And he ends up losing the client. And the implication is he might get fired from his job, which you're super happy about. And then Andy and Laura San Giacomo are hopefully going to work on their sisterly relationship because they've come to understand each other a little bit better than before. And James Spader and Andy McDowell are now together. I really like it. I've liked it for many years. Had you seen it before? I had not seen it before. I watched it for the first time. This is also involved in the Do the Right Thing controversy because it won over Do the Right Thing at Cannes. But mm -hmm. um, not to cast aspersions, you know, Do the Right Thing is a movie about American race relations. And watching this, I'm like, mm, I feel like I understand why European critics preferred this sex movie that involves a scene where two characters just touch each other's faces. This seems very European to me. Yes, you're, you're correct about that. I, it does not surprise me that Can was not really there for Do the Right Thing. Yeah. They're not the audience. But I don't know. I, I didn't feel any particular way about this movie. I thought it was fine. There you go. As I said, Steven Soderbergh's first movie. I oftentimes find that I like the first movie of an auteur director because you feel like they've been sort of marinating on it for a while. So I'm always intrigued by what people do with their first movie. But I have a personal connection to it because I've liked it for a long time. It's fine. I don't think it's bad. It's just... Yeah. I mean, it's not do the right thing. Yeah. You said at the beginning of our conversation that you could make a whole separate list of nominees for this year. So, you know, assuming do the right thing, maybe Sex, Lies, and Videotape, what else are we talking to round Another out this five? Another one that's definitely on my list. I, I, don't, I haven't gone through and made the full list of five, but yeah. another one that is definitely on my list, which I also rewatched, even though I've seen it several times, is When Harry Met Sally. It's I love When Harry Met Sally. I think the script is perfect. I think the cast is perfect. I just think it's probably my favorite rom-com and Billy Crystal is so good. And I mean, everyone in it's so good. Iconic moments, iconic dialogue. This and Sex, Lies, and Finish Up and Do the Right Thing, I think we're all nominated for Best Screenplay. I tend to lean towards movies that I like 
the dialogue. That's my my favorite thing. So that would be on my list. I've seen When Harry Met Sally once, semi-recently. I didn't get a chance to rewatch it. But, you know, in terms of cultural impact, it's got some super iconic scenes. It revitalized the romantic comedy, which is a big deal as much as romantic comedies don't get also a lot of attention at the Oscars. The 90s were all about the rom-com. Yeah. It was the decade of the rom-com. It's the so. legacy of When Harry Met Sally. And also yeah. Rob Reiner. This is in Rob Reiner's hot streak. Oh, and what a hot streak it was. I think whenever we get back to the various years of the 80s, be like, why are we not just falling at the feet of Rob Reiner? <laughs> like, what are we doing? Yeah, it was a great streak of Rob Reiner movies. So yeah, I just I think for cultural impact, it's hard to argue against when Harry met Sally. And it's great. It's great. Another one to think about that we've already mentioned a couple of times on this is The Little Mermaid. I always think that great Disney movies deserve much more credit than they get. Amazing music, delightful story. And I, I always, I just think... It's so hard to make them is the thing. People don't understand how hard it is to make that kind of movie. So yeah, I love that. And this is the beginning, as we mentioned, of Alan Menken supremacy in the song category. One thing we didn't mention with Do the Right Thing is, my understanding is Fight the Power was written for Do the Right Thing, also not nominated for Best Song. Which is bullshit. Yeah. What are people doing? I don't know that it would have won because, again, it's an Alan Menken year, but he's almost unbeatable. Give it a nom, people. There are lots of movies from this year that I love. Parenthood, classic. People might know it more because it became a TV show later on. But the original movie, super good. Just a great ensemble cast. A classic of 80s comedy. And Diane Weist was nominated from it. And she so. was great. Yeah, it's Diane I'm never going to say no to Diane Weist. <laughs> uh, a movie that should be mentioned is Glory. Because mm-hmm. that is a classic of Civil War cinema. We're going to yep. be talking about Vietnam War cinema this year. And uh, Denzel Washington did win an Academy Award for his performance in Glory. If people don't know, it's about one of the first black regiments of soldiers in the Civil War. Morgan Freeman also in it, having yeah. an interesting year this year. Along with Carrie Elwes and Matthew Broderick. Yeah, that's interesting <laughs> casting on that side of things. But oh, whatever. <laughs> a classic, though. Other things to mention from this year? One thing that I want to mention, I am not necessarily making an argument that this should have been nominated for Best Picture, but... It would be a bold, a bold (laughs) argument, I think. It is pretty high up on my list of movies where if someone says, oh, I haven't seen that, I will go, you have to see this. And that movie (laughs) is the Patrick Swayze vehicle, Roadhouse. The Patrick Swayze masterpiece, Roadhouse. It's great. If you, the listener, have not seen Roadhouse, you have to see Roadhouse. (laughs) Uh, I won't go so far as to say if you see no other movie that we've talked about today, see Roadhouse. But yes, add it to your list, definitely. It is a fun time. so fun. I think the last one to mention is one that we have not seen and we know very little about, (laughs) but we did hear something so interesting about it that it feels noteworthy. Yes, this is a movie called The Fabulous Baker Boys. It does appear on lists if you like Google, like the best films of 1989. Apparently, it has one of the sexiest scenes 
in film history, which is Michelle Pfeiffer singing a song called Makin' Whoopie that has reverberated throughout film history. But I don't know what that scene is. I forgot. I wanted to try to find it on YouTube and watch it, but I don't know. Who knows if out of context it would work. Yeah, I just I find it hard to believe that a, a song called Makin' Whoopi is the sexiest scene in, in film. I, I assume it's history. the Makin' Whoopi song that I know, right? The, the famous Makin' Whoopi song. I don't know a song called Makin' Whoopi. Yes, I, you do. Nighttime is the right time for Makin' Whoopi. That's I associate the phrase Makin' Whoopi with the newlywed game. That's where that oh, phrase yes. exists in my brain. Sure, but I swear you've heard the song. It's a super famous song. Maybe I have. It's not coming to mind. Anyway, so that shows up on the list. It sounds fascinating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's got both bridges in it. You got both bridges. Double your bridges. Double your fun. Always. So that feels like enough things to talk about, right? <laughs> we've said more movies that were not nominated than movies that were nominated. Though I'm sure we've also missed more that were great. We already talked about the box office. Two of our nominees were on the top 10 list. We talked about Little Mermaid. I don't think I'm going to stand here and make an argument for like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids as a nominee, though I do love Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. It's pretty good. (laughs) And we've already talked plenty about cultural impact. I think our opinions are clear about the things that have had the cultural impact. And Do the Right Thing is the only movie we have mentioned that is on the AFI Top 100 Films of All Time list. I guess we do have to ask the question, did the Oscars get it wrong? Yes, 100%. Yeah, this is this is the most wrong the Oscars have gotten it yet in the run of our podcast. Mm-hmm. I mean, the nominee list seems wrong. The winner definitely seems wrong. You, you did a bad job, Oscars. Yeah, the Academy really didn't have their finger on the pulse this year. This brings us to the most important part of the podcast every episode. Obviously, Jake Gyllenhaal was not in any movies this year that we He saw. was alive. He was alive, but he was only nine. And I don't think he'd been in City Slickers yet. Is that the 80s or the 90s? I think that's the 90s. So it's, I believe, before his film career even begins. Which leaves us with the question, which of these performances do you believe Jake Gyllenhaal would have smashed? So the role that I would most like to see Jake Gyllenhaal in, and this is kind of a type of role that we've mentioned before, but I guess it's just one of my favorite kinds of Jake Gyllenhaal roles, is as the Robert Sean Leonard character. Yeah, that's exactly what sprang to my mind as well. (laughs) It feels like the most obvious choice. I mean, it's like a thoughtful, sensitive teen. He's done it before. He doesn't get along with his dad. Yeah. I mean, we've all seen October Sky. (laughs) We've seen October Sky a lot. Yeah, we have. He's great at it. A thought, a fleeting thought that came to my mind, and not that I would cast anyone else in this role, really, but what would have been like if Jake Gyllenhaal now played the Robin Williams role in Dead (sighs) Poets Society? That's interesting. Isn't that interesting? I mean, it wouldn't have been as impression heavy, probably. Yeah, I was going to say, probably was not going to do a Marlon Brando. (laughs) Yeah, I was intrigued by the idea of like a cooler, more mysterious sort of teacher that they all would have aspired to be like. I had that thought and I was like, you know what? I think that could have been interesting. I can see him reading poetry. Yeah, you know, if they they do the thing I asked where they sort of fill out that character more and make him a bit more complex love to see a Jake Gyllenhaal do that. Yeah. 
he seems like the best fit for that movie, though. He lives yeah. in Dead Poets Society, in my mind, because there weren't a lot of other things jumping out. I mean, there's not really a role for him in Driving Miss Daisy or in, I mean, Field of Dreams. I feel like the Kevin Costner role is not, like, asking enough of him. That doesn't play to his strength. Yeah. I feel like Kevin Costner is also, like, sort of this all-American charming in a way that really Jake, Jake doesn't fit. Jake is charming, certainly. Oh, he's charming, but, he's but it's, not a different, like, it's a different kind of charm it's a different wavelength yeah i mean you got your board on fourth of july obviously he could be a vet yeah but i don't know for some something about dead poet society just like screamed jake yeah (laughs) just a fit for him i think yeah okay so to conclude our lengthy conversation about 1989 do you see yourself coming back to any of these films yeah do the right thing i feel like i need to watch that movie again there's so much going on one viewing can't it's not enough enough. it's so thought-provoking you'd really just need to to take in the nuance of it and try to get a read on how you feel about it it's not an easy one to digest in one viewing yeah i mean i'll come back to a lot of the non-nominees oh sure i think but the nominees am i coming back to any of them i mean i don't think i am yeah I mean, I could see there being circumstances uh, under which I would rewatch Dead Poets Society. Sure. But I'm not like rushing out to, to rewatch any of these movies. Yeah, I don't and I'm think. a real active urge to revisit that. So yeah. Have we learned anything about what makes the best picture? I mean, I guess I've learned a little bit more about what I think makes a best picture, which is the more complex the movie is, probably I'm more yeah. interested is if it's posing difficult questions. I had a thought too, which I guess I didn't mention during our conversation of I watched Do the Right Thing and my immediate thought is, ooh, I want to read people's thoughts on this movie. I want to read someone's essays on this film. Yeah. Uh, and I've had that feeling about some of the other pictures we've talked about. I felt the same way about Ordinary People, not to just like oh, constantly bring up Ordinary, ordinary people. people. But none of the nominees. I wasn't like, oh boy, I got to read some think pieces about Field of dreams you know well I, I did want to read what people said about driving miss daisy but mostly from a like but that's again like external to the film yes, itself exactly if, again if it wasn't in the situation of having been nominated i don't know that i ever would watch driving miss daisy but i i just feel like the whole set of nominees under normal circumstances under not this podcast are movies i would have watched been like huh that right, was a movie, a movie. <laughs> yeah <laughs> i would never thought about them again <laughs> I mean, I ha- to be fair, I had thought about Dead Poet Society again. I feel like yeah. if, of any of them, there is some cultural relevance well, it is such to an it. iconic Robin it's Williams the, performance. Oh, Captain, my Captain stuff has, yeah. has lasted. People still talk about that kind of thing. So if, yeah, if any of them had any cultural lasting impact, I think that is the one. Yeah. Um, Although if you build it, they will come again. It's very. If you build it, they will come. Also yes. iconic. So yeah. We always look at our patterns. The only pattern we're tracking right now. So I think we should be tracking the biopic thing. Let's track yes. that. Let's check in on angry white guys. <laughs> How many angry white guys do we have this year? <laughs> okay, so we've gone a little bit back and forth with this. I think when, you know, when we're talking about angry white guys, we're talking specifically about toxic masculinity. And yes. I don't know that we actually have a lot of that this year. Like, I don't think so either. You know, Christy Brown's a little angry, but you're like, I get it. And then, yeah. you know, Ron Kovic is upset, but he has every right Understandably to Understandably so. <laughs> yeah. All of our angry white guys this year are uh, understandably angry. We'll add whether or not we think a biopic can ever be the best picture <laughs> to our list of things to track. Anything else to say? Not about this 1989. year. 1989. What a year. 
What a year to be born. Yep. What a year to go to the movies. We weren't. Hopefully. No, I don't think I saw anything that year. shouldn't take a baby to the movies. They're just going to cry and ruin everyone else's experience. All right. That's 1989. So what are we talking about next time? Well, next time is the 12th Academy Awards, or the films of 1939. The nominees, in alphabetical order, were Dark Victory, Gone with the Wind, Goodbye Mr. Chips, Love Affair, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Nanachka, Of Mice and Men, Stagecoach, The Wizard of Oz, and Wuthering Heights. Eagle-eyed listeners... might have noticed that's more than our usual number of nominees so we were forced to come up with a new system kelsey describe the new system yeah we thought we would have fun with it so we've created a game we're going to do we think any year where there are more than five nominees as a bracket so we are going to match the films up by their rotten tomatoes review score and then decide on winners and losers So this is going to end up being a two-part episode in part one, which Mm -hmm. will be in two weeks. We will talk through the matchups, decide on those winners and losers, and then discuss the losers. And then the following episode, we'll discuss the winners and make a final determination about whether or not the Oscars got it wrong. I love this. Bracketizing the system. It's making it into a tournament so we can decide the true victor as opposed to what we normally do where we just pick what we like the most yeah that's no good so it should be fun it's an experiment we'll see what happens before we get to that episode which of these nominees have you seen before medlin i have seen three of them gone with the wind mr smith goes to washington and the wizard of oz Hmm. you i've seen the exact same three so a lot of new Hmm. movies what are the odds that should be fun yeah pretty exciting so in the meantime if you have comments questions concerns thoughts about the tragic decision of 1989 or any previews for 1939 maybe you have strong opinions about i don't know uh ninotchka maybe you should you can reach out to us at oscarswrongpod at gmail.com and on twitter and letterboxd at oscarswrongpod If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend, leave us a lovely review, and maybe subscribe. New episodes of the pod come out every other Friday at 6 o'clock Eastern, wherever you get your podcasts. 